0: Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hey, David. Hi, Susan. How are you? I am very good. Um, today is our last program during the month of September, which is um, National Recovery Month. The theme of this year's recovery is Join the Voices for Recovery. Invest in health, home, purpose, and community. So we've been talking about some um, more global issues uh, related to recovery. And this um, month, or excuse me, today, we're going to focus on probably one of the most important things about recovery, which is relationships, and I'm excited about this topic. Before we get um, too far into it, though, I would like to just give a public service announcement and uh, make a little bit of a brief reference to... Um, the hurricanes that interfered with uh, some of the broadcasts in the in the recent past. And that is, first of all, the uh, National Early um, Emergency Alert System had to postpone their broadcast. They were going to do a nationwide test, and this time was to include text messaging so that every cell tower... Um, Every radio and um, television station would be broadcasting the alert at the same time. That's been um, changed to October 3rd. So next week will be that all nationwide alert. So be prepared for your. We're all going to get a text message. We're all going to get a text message. Uh, The the alarms will set off at 2 18 eastern daylight time so don't be scared it Mm -hmm. is just a test but um i thought that was interesting that that had to happen uh and had to be postponed because that was actually scheduled during um the week of the hurricanes and so in um our effort to keep people informed and aware thought we'd let you all know that and um
1: So we're informing you that this is still coming. (laughs) This is still coming,
0: but it's going to be next week on October 3rd. Uh, Probably a show for another day, I think, but one of the things that we really need to make sure as we're in this uh, time of year when we have risks of hurricanes as well as other potential closing closing of treatment centers – Here in Atlanta, we often get snow, and it is the Super Bowl here again this year. Um, And we're very excited about that. But every time we have a Super Bowl, that brings a terrible ice storm. So because of that, we're going to have... an upcoming program to talk about what do you do if you're in recovery, what are some of the risks around these kinds of situations, and also what are some of the lessons that have been learned from Hurricane Katrina and other um, national disasters like this in terms of how do patients get their medication? How do patients get um, follow-up treatment if they need it? What happens when your medical records may have been destroyed? So that's going to be an upcoming show, but just did want to remind people that um, it's a really important thing to think about and to have a plan for.
1: Absolutely. Those are dangerous times when when we have a national event happening, but Mm -hmm. people also have specific medical needs, and and it's something that that they deal with with people with diabetes, with people. I mean, a lot of the reports that we get from Puerto Rico are people who ended up having major incidences because they were unable to get their medical needs addressed.
0: So we, we need to talk about how to do that and also talk about the inherent risk for relapse when there is that kind of very stressful situation mm. that can happen and how that is often a triggering event for people that are in good recovery to uh, have enough stress that they're going to potentially act out on that stress and have a relapse. So just a little a little advertisement for upcoming um, future shows. Th- future shows, So this week, we're going to focus on the home and the community part of that challenge uh, to join the Voices for Recovery and talk a little bit about relationships. As we were talking about this show, you're the relationship expert, David, and you spend a lot of time with our families and doing some individual and couple sessions with our patients to talk about their relationship issues. And
1: um, this huge. is definitely one of my favorite, my favorite subjects because I think that in the recovery field, mm-hmm. we give people a lot of really mixed messages about this. Um, the, one of the first primary messages we give people is do not get into a new relationship in early recovery, and it's got a, a lot of inherent dangers that are, are um, important to, to address, but at the same time, we also talk about how important relationships <laughs> on a big global um, scale are. It, you know, it's important to develop mm-hmm. new recovering friendships. It's important to develop a um, relationship with your sponsor. So we're telling them to get into these particular kinds of relationships and, and how important it is to make those healthy. And at the same time, we're telling them to avoid any kind of romantic um, um
0: intimate relationships
1: intimate relationships and all the pitfalls that can go with there and we're also for the most part neglecting family relationships a lot of times with couples we say oh you definitely need couples counseling but you need to wait six months or you need to wait a year or you need to do these things first and so i think taking the time to really look at the messages we're giving and explaining Mm -hmm. the messages we're giving um i think is crucial
0: i do too and you've brought up a very important uh, part, which is the message that is often given, don't change anything for a year, don't change your job or where you live or your relationships. Um, and that's a real common message that people get in their early recovery. And then part of it is don't get into a new intimate relationship. Sometimes that's important if a sexual addiction has been part of that person's manifestation of their disease and so there are some very distinct recovery parameters put around that defining what is their abstinence uh with a sexual addiction how are they how are they going to keep themselves and others safe around that but this message don't get into any new relationships what's the basis for that do you think
1: well there's there's actually several um several reasons that that's Mm -hmm. it's suggested one of them is that early recovery is a time when when you are going through so many changes right. um that that really require 110 percent of your time learning to manage feelings and learning to manage stress and learning how to just not use really requires a lot of time and and when you get into a brand new relationship, especially an intimate relationship, that also requires hundred ten <laughs> percent of your time and so and
0: mental uh, <laughs> being capacity. able to
1: um, juggle the two
0: mm-hmm.
1: usually they both suffer I mean the relationships don't usually work out, and also the recoveries don't usually last while that's going on so it' they, they are a high risk of relapse um, another real Reason for it is what you were talking about in terms of sexual addictions, but there's also people who have what we refer to as just romantic addictions, yes. where they're constantly falling in love and they're mm-hmm. needing, whether it's the love conqueror or the you know the Don Juan or whatever, they they just can't mm-hmm. need to be validated in relationships, and so they just will go in and create a world of chaos for a recovering community, jumping into these just relationship after relationship after relationship, whether or not sex is involved. It's, it's just that whole falling in love piece.
0: That intensity of adoring a person and thinking about them all the time and wanting to be with them all the time, wanting to share with them all the time, that takes up a lot of space in your head. And it also releases a lot of dopamine. And one of the things that we know in early recovery especially is that when we take away your primary dopamine releaser of choice, the brain and the body begin seeking other ways in which they can release some dopamine and feel good. Sometimes that's really obvious that they'll uh, give up alcohol but start smoking pot. Those kinds of things we can tell pretty easily, if only from the urine drug screen. But there are other ways in which we see patients begin to look for dopamine release. They might start exercising not in a healthy, balanced way, but in a extreme uh, exercise, over overuse of endurance exercise because they get a runner's high, or the eating of sugar, or spending money. But being in love and finding a new person uh, to adore and to take up all your time and your energy is also a big dopamine releaser. So you can see how these things can happen for a person, and it's often not at a conscious level. They're not saying, gee, I need more dopamine. What can I do to get that? They just begin to Experience
1: and that really has been a game changer in the um, recovery community to speak about it in terms of the drive for for dopamine and the the brain's ability to really push a person to seek that reward. Mm -hmm. Um, It helps to to be able to really describe this as a disease and, and a disease of the brain and specifically of a disease of dopamine because you can see how it just continues to damage. A whole system, whether it's the chemical use or, or all the other behaviors that you mentioned. The other reason um, that's often talked about mm-hmm. is to not get in a relationship in early recovery is a phrase that that is often quoted in family group, two sickies don't make a welly.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And the, yes. the whole emphasis of that is that when somebody's in an early recovery, they are healing. I like to say they're healing from a brain injury. Yes. And so when they're picking this person that they're going to get into a, um, a romantic relationship with, their ability to pick a healthy person isn't there. No. A healthy person is not going to pick them at this stage in the game. And, and so it's setting up um, the, the, the foundation for a fairly abusive, traumatizing experience when people are jumping into relationships too early.
0: On the surface, it seems like that would be a good idea. Here are two people that are going to have to make these major life changes. They're going to have to start going to meetings or therapy or group. They're going to have to give up their drug or behavior of... um, of choice, their dopamine releaser of choice, they're going to have to be making new friends and all of the things that that you described a minute ago. So on the one hand, it seems like, well, let me find a partner, somebody else who is at the same place I am in my recovery. Let me find someone, and we can do this together.
1: We can get in this whole lifeboat together, and we'll save each other.
0: We will save each other. Uh, what they don't realize is that... Um, two sickies don't make a welly, um, and and that it is very, very difficult. And if one person were to slip or one person to become disenchanted with the recovery process, the chances that their newfound partner also is going to have a relapse or uh Leave the um, treatment early is is greatly increased, and and it's not good for either one of them. It is not just dangerous for one; it's dangerous for both of them.
1: And part of what we see see that happens is that it's, they don't tend to be equally yoked in their addiction. So when they get together with whoever that person is, real often they'll discover another. Um, pathway of addiction, another uh, moving on into different drugs or moving to different ways of using drugs. That makes it much, much more intense. So they, they together can have a pretty destructive force that just compounds upon itself.
0: So while it seems like it might be a good idea, and people are often drawn to each other particularly whether it's in a 12-step meeting or whether it's in a group therapy they've shared their war stories and they feel a level of intimacy because of telling their truth that really is not a healthy one to build on we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk more about recovery and relationships thanks for listening
2: the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak.
3: Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend. That needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. S- Susan Blake, and in studio with me today is David Donaldson. I almost forgot who I was. <laughs> um, and I can't even blame it on the full moon because that was yesterday. We've been talking about relationships in recovery and some of the difficulties that people find themselves in in their relationships, regardless of whether or not they... Um, actually have drugs or alcohol involved in their relationships. And this study that was done uh, at the University of Minnesota that started back in the 70s I think is really fascinating to look at how couples recover after an argument really stems out of their relationships in their early, early childhood as soon as right after they were born. So this study looked at um, uh, patients starting in, um, in 1970s, and they followed these folks for at least um, 20 years. What they did was they brought them in and they watched these little babies and how they interacted with their caregivers, whether that was their mother or their grandmother or their father or whomever was their primary caregiver. They watched that level of attachment and how they interacted together, especially if the infant was being... Um, upset or scared or bored or tired or whatever, watched how that happened. Now, we've talked about attachment disorder with um, our friend Alice Wellens in the past, so some of our listeners may be familiar with this whole idea. But the way in which both the caregiver and the baby respond during times of stress really important.
1: And the, the ability of the mother to be able to console a child who's upset is a big part of what they were looking at in this this study, which uh, this was interesting in the way a lot of this um, um, unfolded. They brought these couples in because now as adults, they've brought in members who were in the study and their current romantic relationships, and they brought them in to study how couples argue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um so they would give them topics to argue about and what was nice was then they didn't want to just send these couples out into right. the, so they so they built into the studies some cool down time not part of what they were studying but just so that they weren't sending angry couples out into um, <laughs> to go fight
0: in the parking modern lot. <laughs> traffic
1: <laughs> but one of the researchers began noticing during their cool down time that some of the couples were able to just end the argument, and they were fine. They could talk about other things, and they mm-hmm, could engage on. with each other. And other couples would stay in that argument place throughout the entire cool down and, and go out into the world just as if the argument were still going on. And so they went back and looked at the the, the reports from these children, these couples, when they were young kids to see where they mm-hmm. were in terms of their attachment to their mothers and, and brought up a lot of the things that you were just talking about
0: so when they looked at this these um, subjects were then brought back in their 20s like you say with their romantic partner and they looked at um, those individuals that appeared to have a a good uh, attachment to their caregiver that if the if the baby was upset or frightened or bored or tired and the caregiver was able to soothe them calm them down pay attention to them engage with them help them figure out what the need was and uh, help them get that need met if at all possible that those couples were the ones that tended to be able to have an argument a real argument with their romantic partner, but then move on. When, when they had said their piece and they had heard their partner's piece, they were able to move on and talk about a neutral subject and leave the, the, the study lab and appear as though they weren't having any real difficulties, even though it might have been a very heated interchange during the argument period of the study.
1: But then the ones who had difficulties connecting with their moms were also the ones that that had a hard time ending the argument when the argument was over with and it was time for the cool-down session. Um, And they were the ones that stayed engaged and and really were not able to make a distinction between this is the person I was angry at and this is the person I love during that time period. But what I thought was so interesting was they recognized that the ones who – had had a in a mixed couple a couple where one person was not able to console themselves and the other one was that that person was also able to help the person um who had not been able to as a as a younger person and so it really pointed mm-hmm. out that you aren't stuck with the person that you were as a two year old you have the the brains have the ability to um to grow and change and with neuroplasticity they're able to learn new ways of coping that once upon a time, we pretty much thought we're sat in stone.
0: And that that reaction was going to be your forever reaction. And if you did not get the appropriate nurturing or attention or whatever you needed as an infant, then you were just sort of left with what you, what you had. But if you have a nurturing partner... Not one who's going to just take over and take care of you, but somebody who's going to help you learn to self-soothe. You can learn to self-soothe. Mm-hmm. And that's an important thing that we work on with our patients all the time. Is but,
1: and especially because, you know, a lot of people are told don't get into a relationship for a year And they don't get into a relationship for a year, but they also don't learn anything about how to have a relationship. So when they do finally get into a relationship, they have to have a drink to go on the first date, you know, or that Mm -hmm. becomes the relapse dynamic. And so this really points to the fact that you can learn some healthy coping skills and some self-soothing and some abilities to relate. By getting healthy people in your life, by actually picking a sponsor who's having healthy relationships and, mm-hmm. and getting to know people in recovery that are living healthy lives. And you can learn in order to be able to eventually have that relationship that we all need.
0: And that is um, remarkably encouraging news for people, I think, because before recovery – a lot of folks have had significant problems in their relationships. Either they couldn't maintain a relationship or the relationships uh, that they had were, as one of my um, mentors used to call, warmth by friction. So <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were involved in, um, in very uh, dramatic, um, emotional, heated... Quick to anger.
1: Bonding by fighting. uh,
0: All kinds of um, intense drama that also became either the excuse or the reason given for somebody to keep drinking or to keep using. Mm -hmm. So these um, overly dramatic, emotionally charged relationships, um, you know, they, they might stay together, but they're clearly not a healthy uh, nurturing, loving, growing relationships. So um, they often had these kinds of things. So it's really important for them to realize that they don't have to continue to live like that.
1: And that they can learn new ways to do and, and develop healthy relationships down the road.
0: So I think that was um, a, a really important study done at the University of Minnesota, a really interesting one. And um, Also, the University of Missouri at Columbia did an interesting study that was just released a couple of weeks ago, looking at, um, people who have these patterns of breaking up and then getting back together, blowing up the relationship and getting back together, and how um, how this affects a person's mental health and I'm going to extrapolate a little bit from that to to also say I think it, it, um, it affects their recovery health in that when they have this, this kind of on-again, off-again relationship um, and they looked at more than 500 people and um, found that People who do have these kinds of intense relationships, intense breakups, were often the ones who had more significant uh, psychiatric disorders, mental health problems, more depression, anxiety, other kinds of uh, illnesses that they had to to deal with. And that this pattern of of relationship or (laughs) lack of relationship stability is... um, is not good for one's mental health, and is certainly not one good for one's um, uh, calm lifestyle. And I would think certainly not good for someone who is trying to be in early recovery. Yeah,
1: yeah. It was interesting that in looking at that study, um, it highlighted that these couples tend to be m- more prone to have um, abuse, yes, poor communication, and lower levels of commitment. And so in in working with these couples, it really talks about um, some really specific guidelines for couples therapists to look if, at this couple and why they might be deciding to get back together. Um, what they found is a lot of couples just decide, okay, we need to get back together because we're obligated or we've had, you know, all these years together. And so they jump right back in, but they don't do any work um, to to to. Mm-hmm figure out why they broke up in the first place to fix what caused them to break up in the first place. And they end up in this this pattern of breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. And and it becomes more and more abusive as it goes along. Um, But couples can, if they are willing to stop and do the work, actually create a healthy relationship.
0: Exactly. And that is... um, That is going to be the topic for our next segment. So, everyone, please stay tuned. We'll talk about how to learn to be in a healthy relationship. Thanks for listening.
2: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.atlantahealingcenter.com.
0: This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably
3: know a family member or friend. That needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and I are celebrating National Recovery Month, and the theme this year is Join the Voices for Recovery, Invest in Health, Home, Purpose, and Community. And because of that, we're focusing a little bit on the home and on relationships. Right before um, our last break, we were talking about – the on-again, off-again relationships and how toxic that these can be. And while this isn't just um, limited to people who have the disease of addiction or who have been involved with someone who has the disease of addiction, we certainly see it very very commonly in in that setting where um, there's so much anger and frustration and mistrust and yet so much caring and history sometimes that the, the spouses go back and forth or the, um, the individuals in the, um, in the relationship break up, stay together, break up, stay together and to your point, David um, they don't really do any work except who's going who's gonna to carry what back into the house and not really figuring out what, what is their issue but that doesn't have to, to be like that either
1: by stopping and doing some work. Correct. Um, in our family group, we often talk about how the addiction cycle with, within couples looks a whole lot like the abusive relationship where there'll be the abuse mm-hmm. and then there'll be like this um, this honeymoon period of, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then it grows into this mounting tension until the abuse happens again and so this study wasn't specifically looking at that, but it was looking at that dynamic of breaking up and getting getting back together. And some of the questions that has peak couples ask is one: Are there some consistent, persistent patterns that that you guys find yourselves into? That um, that. Either you can decide we're going to look at and change these mm-hmm. patterns or we can accept that these are patterns that are so toxic that we have to be okay with walking away. And, and you know, a therapist can help you process through the guilt of walking away from a toxic relationship. Um, the other thing that it talks about doing is uh, really asking yourself, why are we getting back together? And is it just because of convenience or if it's just because of history That's not really a great reason. Right. There probably should be some better reasons if you're actually going to make this commitment to get back together and and rejoin everything.
0: I um, worked with a really good uh, family therapist in the past, and I remember his um, posing a question to a couple Uh, not can this marriage be saved, which used to be a a column in one of the um, family magazines that uh, I know my mother used to uh, purchase. So can this marriage be saved? She said that's not the question that you ask when um, a couple is really struggling. The real question that you should ask is knowing each other now, knowing everything that you know about the other person knowing what your life has been like together would you get married again and changing that um, that dynamic from let's go through and dredge up the past and hold our grudge lists and, and go through all of our resentments but would you really get married again and what what brought you together in the first place um, are, those, are those situations are those personality traits are those things still there now, now that you really know this person would you get married again and I think that's a really interesting way to phrase that particularly when you see relationships that are chaotic um, overly dramatic and toxic that would you marry this person again
1: Often I'll throw in there the idea of of knowing this person exactly as they are and expecting that they will not change one iota after uh-huh. they say, I do. Would you still get married to them? It's a good question. Part of what I thought was really interesting about this study is that it was done by, um, by, I actually don't know if it's a man or a woman, but Jake Hale Monk, um, And it was looking at same-sex relationships and opposite-sex relationships, different-sex relationships Uh with this dynamic. And what I thought was so interesting was that the results were the same.
0: Didn't matter. So
1: this isn't about sexuality. It's about human relationships, and the results were the same. Either they they, they still end up becoming abusive if they're not doing the work.
0: And asking the tough questions and having the really honest conversations. Again, I think that's one of the advantages that uh, couples can have as, they, uh, as one or both of them get into recovery is the fact that we're really trying to help people be um, honest in what they want, what they need, what they feel, what they think. And to be able to have the courage to say that even when it's uncomfortable, even when it might not be received in the easiest way. Uh, Because so many of our patients have learned to tell people what they think uh, that person wants to hear to get them off their back or to manipulate them into doing something um, to further the individual's own addiction or to get out of being in trouble and to avoid consequences. So Mm -hmm. this kind of uh, manipulation and less-than-truthfulness is um, one of the hallmarks that we often see when people have been active in their disease. And so part of the overcoming of this is really important and can bring a whole new level of intimacy to a coupleship. If everybody can get on board and figure it out, it can also really shed light on, you know what, this probably wasn't um, a relationship built on real firm ground to begin with, and it's not gotten any better.
1: And it it really highlights that both people have to get on board and be willing to do this work, that one person cannot fix a relationship. I think about that as you were talking about um, parent relationships. Yes, where the parents are desperately trying to save their kids or get their kids on board and, you know, the sadness and frustration when we're, we're working with parents to help them realize that, you know, your, your child is an adult now in and, and control of their decisions, and if they're not interested in this process, you're not going to be able to change that. They've got to be willing to do this work. I mean, the hope is the whole family will get in there and we can do some right. some good family work. But if the if the kid is just sticking with these old patterns, th- it can it can still turn into an awfully abusive situation.
0: Mm-hmm. And we often don't think about that as the child being abusive to the parents. We mm. usually think about it in the other direction that the parents may be abusive to each other or to the child. Mm-hmm. But in some of these relationships, we clearly see that. Uh, the children are being pretty abusive to the parents and very toxic and creating mental health issues for, for the, the entire family. For the entire family. So on-again, off-again relationships, mm, pretty toxic for most people.
1: And probably if it's on-again, off-again, on-again, and, and off off-again, learning to walk away is a pretty healthy step.
0: It's <laughs> a very healthy <laughs> step. So when we, we think about some of these things, there's been an occasional situation where we've actually seen couples coming into recovery together in a committed relationship, um, couples that uh, uh, have children together or that have been together for a long time and realize that in order in order for either one of them to be able to get and stay sober, they both need to come into recovery. And this is another tricky thing. So we, um, we, we want to embrace that. We want to also remember two sickies don't equal a welly. So we have to, um, we have to really think carefully about how to support uh, two people that are wanting to get into recovery together at the same time.
1: And there's there's some changing in the thinking mm-hmm. related to this in some of the new studies that are coming out. Tra- traditionally, what has, has been the recommendation as long as I've been in the field is that you can't do couples therapy when active addiction is present, um, and you shouldn't do couples therapy in early recovery because you're going to bring up all these deep emotional issues and you're going to cause a relapse, and then everything you're working on is going to just fall apart. Um And that's a message that that we've given for a long time. We certainly talk about coming to family education, and you go to AA, and you go to Al-Anon, and you both do your own individual therapy work, and we'll Mm -hmm. get to the couple as soon as y'all have some strength behind you. Um, But there's been some research out of California that's saying that you really should not put off the couple's counseling Mm -hmm. that long, and you should actually begin addressing it much, much sooner um one i thought was in particular was where where they were showing even if a relapse happened build it working with the couple and and as a couple really looking at what were the dynamics that caused the relapse mm-hmm. and looking at what can be changed or adjusted so they continue to move forward um was was appearing to be pretty effective mm-hmm. so they talk about there's there's three pro- recovery processes going on there's the individuals, right. there's the spouses, and then there's the relationship and doing all three of the work for all three of those mm-hmm. things simultaneously.
0: Uh, can be really um, challenging, very interesting, but uh, we're seeing some success with this where in order to really support each other's recovery, if both parties have the disease of addiction, that um, you have you have to do it that way, and allow them to have their own space for their individual recovery, and do what you need to do to support your own recovery, and then be supportive of your spouse's recovery. But then also look at the relationship, and uh, and is it going to recover too? And all we hope all of those. Answers are yes. Yeah, but I mean, not I always. I
1: tend to have a bias of wanting marriages to work out, um, and not all marriages necessarily should work out. But right. I have this this inner hope that they will. Um, and and generally the approach has been, you come to group, you come to family group. We're going to learn about mm-hmm. addiction together. Go to some meetings together. Go to, an open meeting is a meeting where you don't have to identify as an addict or an alcoholic to be present. And so incorporate some of those into your life so you're learning the same thing together. Um, and some couples I have seen embrace that and they, they begin really discovering mm-hmm. who each other is as sober people. Some people discover they don't really care for this person as a sober (laughs) sober person. So that's a whole different acceptance that they're going through.
0: Especially if the couple met while they were both in active addiction and that they've never really known each other as Mm -hmm. a sober person, uh, that they may not remember themselves as a sober person, and that they may have a very different outlook on life than they did when they were active in their addiction. So when you put uh, two people who've been active in addiction together and you get them both sober, they may not exactly fit, and that's okay. That's part of the work that needs to be done. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about how to be um, supportive and how to work through a couple's relationship in recovery. Thanks for listening.
3: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
4: Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys
2: Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www. Atlanta Healing Center.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the Americas Broadcast Network.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is America's Web Radio. And today, David Donaldson and I have been talking about relationships in recovery or relationships uh, that have to do with the disease of addiction. So, um, one of the things that I think is is really important that if a person is in a relationship and they are very interested in trying to work through that relationship and rebuild the trust that often gets um, very damaged when someone has been active in the disease of addiction, there are some common things that we often, we often see the couple having to deal with and um, it's really important to be open and honest about those and start and start dealing with them and David I know you do a lot of work in this area with a lot of our patients and their loved ones.
1: So I always find myself starting out with with the patient and just getting them to sign a release for their family member to be a part of family group and, and helping the patient understand that mm-hmm. their life will get much better and the odds that their relationship will survive if, that, if they have a family member coming to family group. And that's really the first step in building trust. They're, they're beginning to have to decide if they can trust me That they can allow their family member to be in a room with me and not be there to be in control of what's being said Um, because so many of them have this anxiety related to wonder what they're talking about next door. And that's a common question in both groups, in the family group and and in the patient group. What are they talking about?
0: What are they saying about me?
1: And they have this fantasy that they're just over there just enjoying trashing each other, which never happens in either group, quite honestly. (laughs) But they do, they automatically go there. Um, But the reality is, in early recovery, there is, trust has has been destroyed. And you just have to start from that place, that we are now just going to take steps to begin building trust. Um, And so helping them understand that that it takes time that you have to start out with some safe topics um how was your meeting sounds like a really safe question (laughs) (laughs) but it's not it's not it's not because if somebody was sitting in there crying about something who knows where that's going to go I think safer questions are, how's the weather? Right. (laughs) How was your drive home? What would you
0: like for supper tonight?
1: (laughs) That used to be a safer one. It's not that safe in Atlanta anymore, but (laughs) how was your drive home? How was your drive home? Yeah. Um, Not safe. Movies are a pretty safe topic. Mm -hmm. Um, Sports, uh, games are a pretty safe topics. Mm-hmm. So, getting sober during football season and baseball season may have a lot of pitfalls, but they also provide a lot of good, safe conversations. Right. Um, and starting there,
0: and uh, and to your point um, a moment ago, we always think about well, uh, the loved one. Uh, doesn't trust the person with addiction because they've been lied to, they've been manipulated, this person has made promises that they haven't kept. But your point, and I, I hope our listeners caught that, uh, the idea that the person with the disease of addiction also doesn't trust their loved one. They don't trust their loved one to be able to handle some of the things that have happened, to trust them to handle some of the emotions that the person with addiction has been dealing with. they, The person with addiction doesn't trust their loved one with the truth. Mm-hmm. And so... Part of the work—it's—it's a, it's a two-way street. It's not just about the person with addiction making up for everything. It's also about the the loved one also getting honest and also being able to um, to regain the loved trust. ones.
1: Loved ones, as loving as they can be, punish in very different mm-hmm. ways. They might suddenly go out and just run up a credit card and just spend all the person's money. Or they might give them a silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, they might do just little criticism that just kind of slowly cuts the person down. So both sides really are, are at ground zero with beginning to mm-hmm. learn to trust again. Um, and they're very comfortable with walking on eggshells because they don't really know how to begin that process and they don't really even accept that they the other person they don't accept they've done anything that they need to earn trust back from on either side
0: right <laughs> and it's a it's a very interesting dance uh, to watch somebody do but talking about some neutral topics allowing uh, the person to come forth with their secrets or their truth um, in their own time is really also helpful. That question that uh, that we often hear was, how is your group, um, is not an innocuous question, as you said, because it's often um the either the loved one or the person with addiction wanting to know what was said mm-hmm. what did you talk about.
1: And were you honest when you talked about right.
0: it? Right. And did you blame me? Mm-hmm. Um so all of those kinds of things need to just be put out there and and looked at and and worked through, but allowing each person to have a little time to get comfortable with the idea that if this relationship is going to work, I'm going to have to be able to be honest.
1: And and tolerate that discomfort. They, they both have got to get to a point where they can just tolerate the discomfort of
0: mm-hmm.
1: what's this person going to say.
0: Right. I've hurt you. You've hurt me.
1: What I, what I really find beneficial is with the education about addiction, about relationships, about feelings, those kind of subjects become a a way that people can start talking to each other about educational topics as opposed to their actual personal deep feelings. Um, But they'll get to them.
0: They'll get there. You
1: know, if they're talking about this, and then somebody will risk saying, so did you ever feel that way about me? Or they'll risk saying, did you do some of those things? And f- suddenly <laughs> they're finding out a lot more information than they, they might ever, want.
0: Than they ever knew. There's a, um, an activity that you often do as an educational um, component of uh, your family programs, which is the hula hoops. And that is such an interesting, there's many ways to look at that, but also the idea that if you lay a hula hoop on the ground and you stand in the middle of it, that's your space. That's what you need for your own self to that feel comfortable. That
1: becomes a very, very visual boundary. Mm-hmm. That was that was developed by a, a therapist by the name of um, Virginia Satir, mm-hmm. and I first learned uh, about it at a workshop at Marr. Um, Mar recovery residence, mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting because every now and then I'll start to do it, and I'll have a patient who also experienced it over at Mar, so they'll know what's coming, mm-hmm. and you can feel that anxiety going um, <laughs> yes. because it's very very visual, and it, it really it really um, creates a clear picture of what the disease of addiction and the disease of codependency look like, and how they. Interact and depend on each other and dance with each other,
0: and create tons of discomfort for both people. And that you have to own your own hula hoop space, and mm-hmm. you have to stay out of the other person's hula hoop space. And you space. can say,
1: "Get out of my hula hoop."
0: And it becomes a wonderful thing because I will hear uh, family members have that discussion. You're in my hula hoop afterwards. Afterwards, and that they they clearly have have been able to develop this as a shortcut for saying, not right now, and that's not, we're not going to go there right Mm -hmm. now, and this is my space, and this is my problem to solve.
1: It's awfully difficult for me to solve my place while you're standing in the middle of my hula hoop.
0: Correct. So I think that's a really important thing, that the communication uh, the disease of addiction causes people to be isolated and withdrawn and to not trust the people that they should be trusting. And so coming out of that and learning how to talk, learning how to identify how you feel um, and learn to share those thoughts and feelings and to talk in an open and honest way is um, is the work. And it is work.
1: Part of um, what that does... Because people, when they're communicating, don't communicate perfectly. It's not like a script that's been written for a movie, where where every word is is thought out and clear. When people are communicating, they stumble through sentences, and sometimes they have to start over, or sometimes they say completely the wrong thing. And in that setting, it gets normalized, mm-hmm. you know, and and it can become a, a safe place for people to just begin. Figuring out how to get from point A to point B in a, communica- in a conversation.
0: And that's how using the groups, whether it's a process group in treatment or a 12 step recovery program, either for the person with the disease of addiction or their loved ones, can be very helpful. It's a place to practice uh, as you get feeling better to build your own relationship. So thank you all for listening. I wish you all a healthy and happy relationship week, and we'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. Thanks for listening.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e verifying in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net.
4: Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers.
3: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2.
2: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Today,